Titus chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. foundation that you show us your grace and kindness in the gospel. Not only you show us forgiving grace, but Lord, you show us your empowering grace to transform a people for yourself. Help us to glory in that today. Give us what we need to walk in obedience to you, we pray. Empower us, we ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it on? It's not on. Try now. Now it's on. Sorry. Thanks. Thanks, Brandon. Um, so today we're continuing the series through Reformation. Uh, the Reformation Matters, Grace Alone. Uh, this is actually the part two of Grace Alone. Um, and the first, first time uh, last week we saw the grace of loan, um, the forgiving grace. We saw from Ephesians 2, if you remember. But today we're going to look um, just further. We're going to further that ball down the field a little bit. Uh, that The Reformation matters. It matters, and, and over October it, it celebrates uh, the Reformation um, that happened in 1517, but that was just a one, one point in time. Uh, today I want to introduce you to a new guy, though, um, and if you... I think there's a picture of him, Blake, yes. Anybody know, can anybody guess who this guy is? He's actually not a reformer, but he's an under, he kind of has the underpinnings. When I, I like giving pictures of people, and we don't even know if this is really what he looked like. There's lots of different opinions, but this is actually Augustine. Uh, Augustine was one of the figures that the reformers actually looked back to. Augustine lived in the year 354, which is really not long after Jesus, if you think about it, only 200, 300 years after Christ. He lived from 354 to 430. And one of his works that's so well known, even among secularists, everybody, is actually his, his work called The Confessions. And I find within The Confessions, there's, there's, there's one line, uh, Carl Truman pointed this out to me, and I thought it was really helpful, that Augustine actually points to, well, Hold on, we'll hold off on that just for a second, that quote. But Augustine, or Augustine had, had a line in the Confessions that I think is really helpful. And it's kind of a strange, obscure line, but it talks about his life before coming to Christ. Now, now, he was a very immoral man before he came to Christ, but he said one of the things that really describe his life before Christ was an event where he stole pears. Okay? Now, you might think, well, Augustine's stealing pears. Like, what, who cares about pears? 
And that's actually kind of the point that Augustine's making. He talks about how he, he had a neighbor when he was a young boy, and him and a bunch of friends, I forget the word he used, but like his, his scoundrel of friends that he was a part of, they would go over and they would climb the fence, not because they needed the pears, not because they wanted the pears even. They wouldn't even eat them. They would go over, they would steal the pears, and they would come back and they would just throw them, throw them around, toss them around. And I think it's really interesting that Augustine uses a story like this to demonstrate grace. Because when we hear that story, if he, if he would have told a story like that and said, well, I went out and uh, murdered a person, we'd all be like, what are you talking about? We, we never went and done that. But when we hear a story of Augustine talking about pears, we all very quickly start to realize, ah, you know, I've done that. I've done something very similar to that. Maybe, maybe it's just lying very subtly, or, or maybe it's, it's stealing things, stealing a pen when you go to the bank, whatever it may be. And Augustine talks about why it was so wrong that he stole those pears. And I find that so interesting. And he says that he stole the pears not because he wanted pears, because that would have made sense, not because he was hungry, but because in the act of stealing the pears, his sin made him feel like he was in power. And I find that so interesting for us because that's really what our sin does whether it's in very subtle ways, whether it's stealing pears, whether it's stealing a pen when you go to the bank, whatever it is. Maybe, it, maybe it's just not even saying you will do something and not doing it. We, we do this all the time. We live in a world that is perpetually saying they're going to do something when they don't do it. And I've always wondered why. Why is that? And part of the reason, and I see this even in my own life, is that sin is our attempt to grab power and be like God. And we can, we, can all, we can all have probably a pear story, just like Augustine. But I want us to see that grace, at its core, so we'll see this about grace today. I, I tell that story about Augustine to start. Um, I'm losing my notes up here, but um, I want us to see this of grace. I tell that story, and I'll come back to the Augustine story. But by grace alone means the forgiving and empowering grace trains us to renounce evil empowers us to live faithfully, and transforms a pure people to himself. So if you get nothing else from today, get this, that by grace alone means the forgiving and the empowering grace trains us to renounce evil, empowers us to live faithfully, and transforms a pure people to himself. Now I go to the book of Titus because I think Titus is very, very helpful to consider, for us to consider the unbreakable link between obedience and faith. The, the unbreakable link of true grace living out then true grace. And he starts, notice even if you jump down to chapter 2, if you're looking there in the book of Titus, actually verses 1 through 10 are him giving a household code. Let me just give you a few of them. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith. Older women are to be this way. Younger men are to be this way. But then he grounds it. We've got to notice how he grounds it in verse 11. Jump down. That's where I want us to look at. And it's the grace of God appeared. Notice what he says. So if you're taking notes there, see this. The grace of God's grace appears. And it's the forgiving grace of God. It's the forgiving grace of God. Jump down to verse 11, if you would. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. 
Now that word, that phrase, the grace of God is used almost 15 times in Paul's letters. And here, the unearned favor of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. Truman, Carl Truman is very helpful here. He says, the incarnation is the embodiment of God's grace. It's supreme revelation. Christ is grace personified. And so we see, for the grace of God has appeared and he's appeared in, in the incarnation or in the coming of Christ. So you're taking notes there. The grace of God brings salvation for all kinds of people. The grace of God brings salvation for all kinds of people. Now notice, notice again in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And you may be wondering, well, what does that all people mean? Some universalism that everyone will be saved? No. We have to remember that bringing salvation to all people is Paul's way of referencing that there was once a time when not all people were included. The sal- that salvation was not for all people at one time. There were people who were excluded from that all people. And actually, unless there's someone who's an ethnic Jew here, all of us would be that. All of us would have been the people who were excluded from the salvation of the revealed truth coming, coming to Israel. But now, he says, salvation has come to all people. And when he says that, he's referring to a kind of people, a class of people. Notice in another place, 1 Timothy 4.10. This is what he says, the same thing in another place. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people especially of those who believe. Now notice that, even the way he says that, that that Christ is the Savior of all people, all kinds of people, you could put in there, I think very helpfully, all kinds of people, particularly, especially those who will believe. This is an important distinction because if we just take this unequivocally and we say, look, Jesus, he's the Savior of all people, we become like a universalist. We say, come to Jesus, he saved you already, just come to him. No, 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 no. He is saving particularly those who believe, okay? And so if you're one who's believed, then you are that type of person. You're that kind of person. And now notice, notice again. So notice what he says again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I don't know if um, maybe you have a credit card But imagine at the end of the month when you have to pay your credit card debt, your credit card bill, that you couldn't pay it. And imagine with me, if you will, you couldn't do that for a very, very long time. Maybe say a hundred years. And you just kept ringing it up. You just kept like sliding the card. What happens when when that does that, when it just keeps compounding? That is the word that I think that Paul helpfully elsewhere talks about debt. That that's what me and you and all humanity with us, we have proverbially taken our credit card and we've walked over, just like Augustine talks about with the pears, and we have proverbially continued to slide the card and continued to rack up debt. And as Paul talks about in another place, just like we saw last week, Colossians 2, this is another angle from what we talked about last week, Colossians 2, 13 through 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
So that debt, the debt, we keep sliding the credit card in that way. He says Christ has actually canceled it. And here's how he's canceled it. By canceling it of the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And that is the good news of Christ, that all who come to him will be forgiven. And we see the forgiving grace of God. When God's grace appears, he doesn't do it in the abstract. He does it in a person. This is why our understanding, our conception of grace has to come back to Christ. Grace is not just God sentimentally looking and saying, well, you all are sweet, we love you. No, he has forgiven us in Christ. But I wonder, what what are people's responses to grace typically? I want to give you two responses that I think are very typical to grace. And I was going to give this last week, but I want to give it today. We often forget, I think Jonah actually, he's a story that we don't hear very often, but when we do, I would argue that we really don't understand the story of Jonah. The the story of Jonah is that, Simeon loves this story, so I tell this story a lot, I feel like right now. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and I always do this with Simeon, I'm like, okay, God told Jonah to go to to Nineveh. Which way did Jonah go? Jonah went this way. (laughs) He went the opposite direction. But we forget that the main character in the book of Jonah actually isn't Jonah, God told him, go to Nineveh, tell them about what, what I've, uh, the judgment's coming to you. And then there's a big fish that swallows Jonah. We remember that piece. And he comes and spits him out in Nineveh. But we never, every children's book, I've actually never seen this correctly done in a children's book. At the very end, we always make Jonah out to be this hero. Notice how the book of Jonah actually ends. So that he goes to Nineveh, he tells them, God's judgment's coming, you should turn. And then they do. From the king on down, every one of them, they're like, we should repent. Judgment's coming. But what's Jonah do? Verse, verse, four, verse 1, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I want you to consider that for a second. Here's a prophet. This is, the prophets that, this is one of the prophets that, that God sends in Israel. He sends Jonah, and rather than Jonah being like, the message worked, praise God, what's he do? And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Notice what he says. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you would be gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abound. Remember what we talked about the other week? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life, for it's better to me to die than to live. We never tell that part of Jonah. You know why? Because it's very uncomfortable. Here's a city who's completely headed on the trail, on the train tracks of destruction. Here's the prophet. He tells them, turn from your sin. And then they do. And then he's mad. I knew you would be gracious, God. I knew you would be kind to them. That's, this is the response of some to the grace of God. They see Jonah was angry because God was kind and gracious and merciful towards sinners. And I would argue that Jonah represents the heart of every legalist. This is the one direction we go. We go from the grace of God is the legalist direction. I love what Truman again says. Jonah's reaction is only so ugly because God's grace is so beautiful. 
an entire city of sleazy, corrupt, vile human beings is yet delivered from judgment and brought into joyful communion with God. This story is not so much about Jonah's bitterness of soul as it is God's glorious grace. And before we depart from Jonah, God's response to grace, I want to ask you a question very pointedly. If this whole town we lived in came to Christ, would we rejoice? I want you to think about the most sleazy, sleazy, corrupt, vile human beings you know in your life. Think about them. Get them in your brain. If they came to Christ, would you take a response like Jonah or would you take a response like what we see him talking about? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So would we, would we be like Jonah or would we be like the, the true response to grace? Let me give you a second one, a second example even of this. You take Pharaoh in the Old Testament. We wonder what hardened Pharaoh's heart. When God told the people, he said, Pharaoh, send the people of Israel out. God sent judgment on him. And every time Pharaoh would come back to Moses and he'd say, Moses, please forgive me. Please relent. Exodus 8, 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Time and time again, the grace of God toward Pharaoh only hardened them. And I would argue this is what happens to to the legalist in that direction. He hardens, continues to harden. And we'll look then later at the license, what what the other direction is. But what exactly, let me ask you, what exactly does the grace of God do in us? How do we know if this is the bad response, what is the good response? How do we know the grace of God has come to us? Well, God's grace, secondly, I want you to see that God's grace trains us. It trains us. It's the transforming grace of God. So notice, again, what he says in verse 11 and in 12, 12 and 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, here's here's how we know the grace of God's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Legalism says, so I have a chart here. I used it last week, but I want to use it for you again. Here's here's the straight and narrow, if we will. It's to be saved by grace, to walk in faith. And in one direction, we, we can be like Jonah in that way and be a legalist and think, I, I know I'm, I'm saved by grace, but ah, I don't want other people to be saved by grace. Or we go in the direction of license. Now, license says, God loves me either way, so it doesn't matter how I live. And this is the one I would argue, well, they're both, I think, easily pitfalls for us. But saved by grace to walk in faith says, I am loved and accepted in Jesus. I want to walk in a way he desires me to. That's true faith. That's the grace of God coming to us. So I, so I want us to see first, so it, the grace of God trains us, but the grace of God trains us in what we should avoid. It doesn't just train us randomly. The grace of God's not training me to be a bodybuilder. The grace of God is trained, thankfully, because I'd be really failing. The grace of God trains us in what we should avoid, what we should get away from, training us 
to renounce ungodliness, verse 12, and worldly passions. It includes renouncing or saying no to ungodliness. Notice, notice again what, what Romans 6. Now, we read some of that earlier. Romans 6. For the death he died, that's Christ, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's the resurrection. So, here's his conclusion. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the Christian. The Christian says, I am dead to sin. And I would argue that, unfortunately, what we tend to speak like of the grace of God sounds like this. I can't tell you how many college students I've talked to that sounds just like this. I fell into pornography again for the 10,000th time. God's really teaching me about His grace. Is He, though? Is He fully teaching us about His grace? Where I blew up on my family again, God's teaching me a lot about grace. Or I can't read my Bible because I'm just too busy, but God's grace is sufficient. Can I just say, those are oxymorons. Those statements are oxymoronic because they say, Jesus died for me, but they live as though that sin is dominion over them. I, I talk to my son a lot about something like this, and I speak to him in ways that he understands, and here's the way he understands it. I tell him often, now he's, he's not a Christian at this point, you know, he's only three years old, but I'll give you the way I talk to him about this. I said, Sim, there's something called the fussy-wussy dragon that has captured the heart of humanity. And actually, I use that word because if you notice sin, just like we saw with Augustine's pears, and like you see with most sin in your life, most sin is not this like terrible, killing people, murder, death. It's not that. Actually, it's far more fussy-wussy. It's actually far more vain and, and cynical and far more even petty, if I would use that word. Petty. So just like we saw with Casey Schulman, what's he saying? He's saying unforgiveness, bitterness, frustration, they wronged me. That's where our sin is seen. But the grace of God trains us in getting away from that. That If you're really a Christian, you can no longer say, I'm under the dominion of the fussy-wussy dragon. You're now no longer under dominion, under the fussy-wussy dragon. You have been freed. But to continue to say things like, I fell into pornography again for the 10,000th time, God's teaching me about His grace, is like saying, I'm under the fussy-wussy dragon, I could leave, but I'd rather not. I would rather lay here in the slew of despond under the fussy-wussy dragon. And I want to tell us, we can't be that. We can't live as Christians under the fussy-wussy dragon. The sin and destruction, we are no longer, like he says, we are no longer living under the power and dominion of sin. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. So it trains us, the grace of God trains us in what we should avoid. Secondly, I want us to see that the grace of God trains us in what we should pursue. Now notice too, I keep saying the grace of God. When I say that, I'm saying the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, okay? We come back. This is why to remove Christ from our message 
is to remove our message. We have no message apart from Christ. Training us to renounce godliness, verse 12 again, renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now notice, each one of these are a different sphere. He says, and to live self-controlled. This is with me. And then two, upright. Upright actually refers to our relationship with other people. And then thirdly, godly lives. Here's the piece, though, as Christians, we can't be Gnostics in this room. This isn't for some future day. This is for right now, today. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, that's me personally, upright between me and others, and godly lives. When? When, though, you ask? In the present age, right now. This is for right now. Now notice what he says then, even in verse 13. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we could talk a lot about just the the beauty of this phrase, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, but I'm going to save that for another day. Christians are those who eagerly look forward to the day of Jesus Christ. And as we wait... May I say, that's actually how, as we wait and we hope and we long, that's one of the ways we pursue, the grace of God trains us to pursue self-controlled lives, uprightness, and godly lives in the present age. Let me give you one example. I would argue that prayer is one of the greatest expressions of this. When, When we sin... I'm afraid we approach prayer kind of like the rest of the world does. Prayer, the rest of the world treats prayer kind of like this. They see something horrible happen, and then they say something to the effect of, our thoughts and prayers are with the victims. And what they're really saying is something like, we feel really bad for the victims and want to express our solidarity with them and their loved ones. And brothers and sisters, that's not biblical prayer. Biblical prayer is is not a conversation between equals. Biblical prayer is not twisting God's arm for help. Biblical prayer is not even a cooperation between a servant and a king. Biblical prayer is an act of divine grace. Biblical prayer is an act of divine grace that says, I need your help. Help me, Lord. Give me your unearned mercy. Do you hear how that sounds different? Do you hear how different that sounds? And so to the person, I'll I'll just give the example, to to the young man that's struggling with pornography, saying, for the 10,000th time, I've fallen into this. And he goes to God and he says, Father, forgive me, I'm sorry I did this again. Is that really prayer? Is he really recognizing, I don't deserve this. What I deserve is death. No, he's not. We could talk more about that, but... Or take the one that says, I blew up on my family again. When they come in prayer, do we see our own plight? No, not really. Or, I can't read my Bible again because I'm just too busy. Do we see the offense of even that? That, God, I've neglected your word. I've closed my ears off to you. 
until we come to him for the biblical prayer, which is, I need your help right now, today. So he, he's done this for transformation. He's done this for forgiveness in us. But notice where he goes. This is, this is where there's hope here. At this point, it probably feels like you're like, man, I see how much I failed. I see how much of a failure I am, and I want to say good. Because notice what he goes on to say. Notice, don't miss this. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. It's God's grace empowers us. It empowers us. The empowering grace of God. Notice what he says again in verse 14. 13 and 14. Look at 13 too. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now notice back to that phrase, who gave himself. Verse 14, he says, who gave himself. Now that giving in, in, verse, in that word, just gave, he's saying this is a once and for all giving. He has given himself fully, completely for all of us. All of us. He gave himself. It's already done. Unlike the Catholic Church that continues to say, the Mass becomes, oh, this is where we receive grace. Look, we're going to re-crucify Jesus. No, no. It's already done. He's already redeemed us in that way. He gave himself, redeeming for himself a people for himself. So firstly, under that, I want us to see that the grace of God redeems us from lawlessness. Now, that word for redeemed is really helpful because it's like, picture a person that is stuck in slavery, okay? And I would actually say it, I think it's actually very helpful to say they're enslaved to the fussy-wussy dragon of sin. And I use that word because that's what sin typically looks like in mine and your life. Petty, 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 with a capital P, petty. It's petty. And he's saying that the word for redeemed is to set free, to rescue from captivity those who were formerly enslaved by their own lawlessness. Listen to what Romans 6 says. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has died, for one who, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Let me give you an example from my own life. I wasn't going to do this, but I'll give this one. I, I hear that example from Augustine talking about pears. And it really does connect, at least I'll say personally with me. Because I remember a time, now my, to give you the full story, my grandmother used to have a pool. It's a beautiful pool. And she would work, we would have this pool, it was, we had access to it at any point we wanted. But I remember a point in my life, there was also a resort out the road that had a pool. And they technically had a sign outside that said, do no swimming from people who are not guests. Now, you can imagine, we all, we all kind of smile and chuckle because we can all point to things in our life like this. You know where the story's going. Here's a pool I have access to, but this pool over here I'm not technically supposed to be at. You see where it goes. And I will say, that's how I think sin looks the majority of the time in our life. It looks very tame. Well, there's a sign here. In it. I know I shouldn't necessarily be doing this, 
but here I go. How ought I think to that, of that man? The man who used to go and sneak into pools. The man who, oh, he, he wasn't that big of a sinner. You know, he was, just, he was a sinner, but like, not, not that big of a sinner. No, 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 no. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, you, so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has died, for, the one, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And that word for lawlessness, I think, is really helpful. It literally just means against the law. You're against the law. Everything that God reveals, we're against it. As 1 John says, everyone who practices, makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Jesus has redeemed us from the law in the sense that our hearts were once positioned against his holy law. The death of Jesus liberated us from the dominion of sin in our lives. And so speaking back to myself for a second, so if I would look back at myself and say, well, Daniel, speaking to my former self, Daniel, you know, like, I can't not do this. I can't not sneak into pools. I can't not steal petty cash or whatever your thing was. I'd want to say to that person, and I hear this a lot, I can't obey this. Especially guys that are stuck in sexual sin, they'll say, I can't obey this. It's just too much for me. Then I want to say, you're not a Christian then. The Christian can never say, I can't obey this. The Christian can never say, I have no ability to to obey this. If we're saying that, what we're saying is, I'm dead in my sins. To say, I, and I believe that, actually some people that do say, I can't obey this, that's what they really mean. I still am dead in my sins. This is contrary to the forgiving and the empowering grace of God. God's grace has freed us from the dominion of sin to walk in obedience to Christ. It is because, Carl Truman, I think, helpfully says, it is because we are saved by grace, the unmerited favor, that grace then works in our lives to accomplish God's purposes for us. It's because we're saved by grace that we can walk in grace. Here's why, though. He goes on. Secondly, I want us to see the grace of God purifies us to be God's people. It purifies us to be God's people. He says, again, verse 14, look at it, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now, this purify, if you remember back, if you hearken back to the Old Testament, refers back to what God used to say of his people in very covenant terms. Listen to it. We heard, we didn't hear part of it read this morning, but Exodus 19, this is what God says to them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians when they were in slavery. Remember that. They were in slavery in Egypt. How I bore you on eagles' wings, which is an image of salvation, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, I will indeed, I, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." God's purpose with Israel was to make them a treasured possession. And we know how the story goes. They continue to be covenant breakers all the way up until the New Testament, where God's other promise, which is He's going to write His law 
upon our hearts for obedience from the heart. If redeem refers to the removing of the controlling effect of sin, then purify removes the defilement of sin. And what God is doing, if you, are, if you have experienced the grace of God, what God is doing in you is He's making you part of His people. I hope you can feel the weight of that beauty. That God has so, He's not only saved you from sin, He is more committed to your sanctification than you are. We need to be freed from the dominion of sin to be free to walk in obedience to Christ. And the proper response to the saving death of Jesus is a zealous, good, being zealous for good works in that way. Notice again, I'll point you to just one other place. 2 Corinthians 7. It's the same piece. And we always, we always highlight, just before this, where, where Paul says, don't be unequally married. And basically, avoid false teaching. But here's the, here's the reason. Here's the ground for it. Since we have these promises, beloved... Okay, so since we have the promises, since we have the promises, Christ has defeated sin, Christ is coming again, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to the completion, in the completion of in the fear of the Lord. It is because we have the promises of free forgiveness that Paul can tell us to live holy and blameless lives in the present evil age. It's because of the precious promises that we are able and empowered to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and soul. It is because of the promises of God that we are forgiven fully and completely, and we pursue holiness completely before the Lord. Now, I want to stop at this point, and I want to acknowledge that what I'm talking about here, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, Daniel, you don't realize how much I've sinned this week. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, Daniel, you're talking about, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and you don't realize how much of a sinner I've been this week. And I want to remind you again, again and again and again, and I'm going to remind you next week and again and again, come back to the forgiving grace of God. Come back and seek His empowerment. Because here's what, here's, I'll speak for myself. When I have been stuck in sin, here's my route. Fall into sin let me wallow around like a pig in the mud, and then just keep wallowing. That's my, that's my method. Or maybe some of you are like, well, let me just forget about it and move on. Come back to the grace of God. Freely, fully forgiven, seek His empowerment. That is the place that we find life. I heard an example of this this past week. Um, we're talking to our students right now about biblical sexuality at, at Crew. And they were talking, the, the concept, the, the idea of purity rings came up. If you don't know what a purity ring is, I'll explain it real quick. A purity ring is something that is given typically to the young ladies, and it's given from their dads typically that says, don't, here, keep your purity until you're married. Okay, that's the, that's the goal. And the disdain that those young ladies spoke of it with, I think is very true. Because what we end up doing a lot of times, and I think purity rings are very indicative of how we end up dealing with sin. What we try to do is we try to stick a little ring on it and say, remember, remember, here's the law. Remember, you should be obedient. You should be pure. And what I wanted to tell them and what I told them and what I want to tell us about all sin, we can't just come and be redeemed by the grace of the law. We need to see, even in our things that we do, the things we try to avoid 
the forgiving and the empowering grace of God. Here's why. Because if we just have a purity ring, and then we think, okay, well, I've been pure, I've kept myself pure till marriage. Notice that. I have kept myself pure for marriage. Who did it? You did it? No. God did it in you. We have to have a perspective like the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Do you hear that? I worked harder than any of them. So maybe whether it's a purity ring, whether it's a new resolve, whatever it is, it's not enough. What you need is the grace of God to see the empowering work of grace in you. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. If you just, just like a purity ring, if you try to put this on and think, this will keep me pure, let me tell you, it won't. Or maybe, maybe it's not a purity ring for you. Maybe you're like, well, Daniel, I'm, I'm a grown man. I'm not, I don't have purity rings. Great. But what we do is we try to have these little resolves, don't we? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to try harder. Next time I'll be better. Welcome to the, the law. We yoke a new law on ourselves and don't come to the empowering grace of God in Christ. So here's the last piece. It's the grace of God makes us zealous for good works. Who gave himself, notice what verse 14 says again, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul knew that those who had the law would be concerned with people who are now under grace. And the concern was, now that they're under grace, will they not just act like the devil? Listen to what he says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, that, that word, by the way, too, for by no means, is the equivalent of God forbid. God forbid. God forbid in the sense that we do not continue in sin that grace may abound. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried, therefore, with him and by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Every time a Christian walks in disobedience and rebellion, we declare that Jesus is still in the tomb. We don't speak of the life and the grace that God has shown us in the gospel. But the way out isn't just to say, well... I give up, whatever, live and let live, let go and let God. No, 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 no. We pursue obedience by the empowering work of the Spirit in Jesus Christ. To do that, to continue to live as though we were, we were buried, but to continue to live in that way is to do what Bonhoeffer says. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace, essentially, is saying, similar to what we just said, to live as however we jolly well please and know that God will just forgive us someday. Cheap grace is forgiveness without obedience. Cheap grace is looking for God's forgiving favor without seeking His power to obey the truth. Let me say that one more time. 
Cheap grace is looking for God's forgiving favor without seeking his power to obey the truth. God's grace is the furthest thing from cheap grace because it cost the Son of God his life. Cheap grace is the kind of grace that accepts everyone but does not discipline for sin within the church. I love what Bonhoeffer again says. He said it is costly grace, though. Unlike cheap grace, the kind of grace that the Bible pictures is the kind of grace that says, you've been fully forgiven, yet now freely go obey. He goes on and says, it's costly grace because it costs a man his life. It's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs the life of his son. And what has cost God, much, much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Here's what this means for us as a church. This means that when the grace of God hits a person, they don't walk perfectly. Au contraire. They walk and they stumble and they fall. And that's probably maybe even you today. But the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the Christian says, I see that I'm the problem. I see my sin. Father, help me by your Spirit, for your glory, to live without this in my life. It is entirely possible for a person to have the right profession of faith without the reality of that same faith. Let me say that again. It is entirely possible to have the right profession of faith. We see this, guys, all the time. Without the reality of faith. So the question is, well, how do we see the reality? Here's the last piece for us. This means for us as a church... We need to be diligent fruit inspectors in each other's lives, in our own life, not assuming that everyone who professes to be a Christian is one, but we look for the fruit of salvation. We look for, a person can say all day long, they're a Christian, but as we as a body examine, is there saving faith? How do we do it? We look for fruit. This will not be a perfect endeavor. We are deeply flawed in our understanding. We're very partial in our knowledge. But grace is subjective only as long as we're connected to Jesus Christ. And when we realize that saving faith produces fruit, then we must look for fruit from one another's lives. By grace alone, I hope this is encouraging for you, and I want to conclude here, that by grace alone, the forgiving and empowering grace trains us to renounce evil empowers us to live faithfully, and transforms a pure people for himself. I want to conclude here, and I want us to then take communion together. The thing you need to remember, brothers and sisters, is that your sanctification is not, probably, if I had to guess, your chiefest concern in life. Maybe it is, and if it is, that's really good, because you're on team, you're on the side of Jesus. But I'll tell you who's your personal sanctification is top priority in his life. It's the Lord Jesus. Your sanctification, likely today, is not your biggest concern. But I can guarantee you whose it is. It's Jesus' biggest concern. And what he's doing in you, I want to remind you again, what he's doing in you, read it one more time. 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You are not your own anymore. You are Christ's. And what he promised to do in you, he'll complete it. This is not something you're doing on your own. Do not hear what I'm saying as, well, Daniel, he's talking about a lot of grace. Now I need to go be obedient. Now I need to go try harder. You've missed it. Come to Christ again for the empowering, empowering, transforming, forgiving grace that only Christ can offer. Now we're going to take communion. And I want us to turn, and I think this is a good, good time to just consider what we're doing here. What we're doing here is there's a supper here or a, or a meal that we're going to partake in, and it's a reminder that there is a sacrifice given. But the fact that it's here is a reminder that there's a sacrifice available. And so if you're sitting there and you're like, man, Daniel, I am not worthy of the grace of God, I want to say, good. Good, praise God that you realize you're not worthy of it. This supper is not for people who are worthy in the sense of, well, now I've, now I've made it, now I've arrived. It's for people who are saying, I need you, Lord. Lord Jesus, I need you more than anything right now. So we're going to pass the supper. If the deacons can come forward, Norman, Tony, if you guys want to come forward, we'll take the supper together. Listen to what Paul's warning is. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What does it mean to drink it in an unworthy manner? Again, I feel like I talk about this every week, every other week, so I'll give it from another angle this week. The unworthy person is the person who says, I'm good enough, therefore I'll eat. The worthy person is saying, I know I'm not good enough. I desperately know I'm not good enough. Help me, Lord, to be obedient, by faith, trusting in Christ. That person is worthy to take the supper. Okay, so the worthiness doesn't depend on how good you are, how strong you are, how able you are. The worthiness of the person is actually if they realize how unworthy they are. So it's kind of paradoxical in that way. Let a person, he says then in verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Who et, who et, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That person is, the, the eating and drinking judgment is the person who's not discerning, am I connected to the body of Christ? Am I clinging by faith to the Lord Jesus? Okay, so that's what we're doing. If you guys can pass the elements, that's what we'll do that. Listen to what Paul says then. Verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And again, I wish I could have a loaf up here to like show you what this means. But the bread, all of this bread has already been pre-cut. It's been pre-whatever, broken. Uh, it would be a lot more powerful if we could like actually break it off to see and feel what Christ is saying here. He's saying that for everyone who's taking... You're taking, not literally, this is not literally his body and his blood and the way the Catholics take it, but what we're saying is, I'm taking a piece of the main loaf. By faith, right now, we're getting ready to take a piece, by faith, of what Christ has offered. Okay, so that's what we're doing. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And this is what he says, this is my body, which is for you do this in remembrance of me. So we remember, what we're remembering here is the death of Christ. 
And as we're eating, we're eating a celebration. We have redemption. We're not celebrating this in a somber. I always used to celebrate communion as this like somber, weird, introspective moment. No. Victory, guys. We sang it this morning. Victory in Jesus. And so we take the supper as a celebration of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. We're we're getting a foretaste. This is just a foretaste of the kingdom to come. This is a foretaste of Christ's victory over everything. So this is my body. Hear the Lord Jesus again, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. verse 25. He says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, we've seen this before, but the cup that Jesus drank down to the dregs was the wrath of God. That's not the same cup that we drink. The cup we drink is redemption. The cup we drink is not wrath any longer. The cup we drink is redemption. We drink a different cup than Jesus drinks. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Hear it again. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread like we just ate and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, we're looking forward. This is every time we eat. We're looking forward not just to this moment. We're looking forward to a day, a day when he will come. That's what we're longing for, just like we saw from Titus today. We're longing, we're waiting, we're eagerly anticipating the day as we see in part that one day we'll see in full. Let's do that together. Let's take the cup together. I want us to take a moment of actually reflection, and I want us to consider, I'm actually going to lead us through a time of a few questions. Um, So give me just one second. And I want you to consider, as we're pausing, how maybe you have neglected the empowering grace of God in your life. So let me ask you this. Here's here's the first question. Is there any way this week that you have neglected the forgiving grace of God in Christ? Is there any way that you've neglected the empowering grace of God? I want to encourage you, like we just ate, ate from and drank from, to come back to Christ afresh and anew, to, to know that all those, salvation has come to all those who by faith cling to him. Amen. May we do that. How about I pray for us and then we'll close out. Father, help us, we pray to be a people who come to you and cling not just to your forgiving grace, but, Lord, who cling to forgiving grace, that you may empower us to be a people zealous, zealous for good works. Lord, when we are zealous for your, the works you've prepared for us, 
we're accomplishing what you've, what you've purchased. Lord, cheap grace says forgiveness without obedience, but your costly grace says we have been forgiven. May we walk in obedience with the same grace you've given us to forgive. Father, may we not think that this is a self-improvement project. May we know and trust and be assured that your empowering grace is sufficient for us. Do that in us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.